Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. The King's English Bookshop in Salt Lake City has published a collection of Ann Cannon's Salt Lake Tribune columns. The collection is titled, I'll Tell You What. That's a phrase that her father used a lot. Uh, he is Lavelle Edwards, beloved coach of the BYU football team for many years. And uh, Ann Cannon's uh, collection uh, talks about uh, her father, her uh, mother, many family members, uh, travel, uh, sports, many, many, many things. And uh, we welcome in uh, Ann Cannon to the program. Thanks for joining us. Hey, thank you. It's such a pleasure to be here. And I'm just going to say very quickly that I'm closing the garage door where I've been hiding in a beach house with 25 other members. <laughs> so if there's a little noise for half a second, that's the problem. Okay. Okay. All right. Thank you. You got it. Yeah. Okay. Are, are you at, you're inside the garage, are you? Or outside? Yeah, I'm hiding in the garage. <coughs> in the garage. It turns out okay. Newport Beach is really noisy, but I'm here now, so we're good. This is a family? A lot of family there? It what, is. Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. This yeah. Is a tr- so my parents, a long time ago, started this tradition of my brothers and me and all of our kids, and now grandkids, we're all down here at the beach together, and I thought I found the perfect quiet place, but all of a sudden a bunch of great nieces opened the garage door. But we're good now. So. <laughs> good. good deal. This tr- tradition, I think your parents started, a, a yearly family they trip, did. is it? Yeah. Yeah, about 30 years ago, we started doing this, and we've been doing it pretty much every year ever since. It's been fun to watch the generations grow up and move on, and here we all are now again. Yeah. Uh, maybe just to jump in to talk about your dad. Uh, the, the, you, you end the collection with a whole section uh, columns about your, about your dad. Of course, yeah. uh, you know, famous to, uh, to, <laughs> to, to most in Utah. I guess to, to you, he was, he was dad, right? Yeah, he was he was he was just dad. In fact, we were talking a little bit about him last night. How, you know, my mom said you really couldn't tell when he came home from a game whether or not he um, had won or lost the game. I mean, we all knew, but he was um, he when he came home, he was dad. He was really it was just sort of like about the family, and he he was very good about leaving stuff on the field, which you know was great actually for growing up. Mm. Uh, the the public image he had anyway was stoic. You'd see him on the sidelines, yeah. <laughs> and you couldn't tell right? from expression whether his team was winning or losing. Uh, I'm I'm guessing to <laughs> I'm guessing he was a competitor. You, you couldn't be that successful yeah. without being a competitor. Yeah, he was really. I mean, you know, he was really just such a good guy. But last night, my brothers and I were talking about how sometimes we forget how truly competitive he was. I mean, I don't think you can have that long of a career. Uh, without just having that sort of steely resolve to to win a game, um, but he at 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 home and away from the field, he was he often was laughing, he was smiling, he didn't have that sort of Mount Rushmore face, you know, away from the field. So, and he uh, he, he was present. He he said, "What was his phrase? You can you can you can parent while you're while you're traveling. You can oh, parent yeah. on the way on the way." Yeah, that was, was yeah. his. Yeah, that, that's exactly right. He would say, uh, "You can parent along the way," which was really his philosophy. So, so, and he did. I mean, he took he took us he took us on the trip with him. Um, we we went on a lot of recruiting trips with him, even when when we were kids, because back in those days, you didn't have to players didn't have to sign a letter of intent, uh, like you know, by a due date. So. So what would happen is you uh, recruit a kid, and then other coaches, other schools could come in and kind of poach. So my dad would spend um, springs and summers just really checking in with the kids he'd already recruited to make sure that they were still committed to BYU, and he took us along on those adventures 
you know, all the time. So it was it, it was a, it was an interesting way to grow up. It got us out of, um, well, you know, out of probably out of Utah Valley, and we met a lot of different kind of people along the way. It was a good thing. Was that unusual? Coaches taking their kids on the on the trips. Yeah, I, I you know I don't know really, but I kind of think so. Um, yeah, I just think that it was a little bit unique that way. Hmm. Uh, tell me about uh, how your dad met your mom. Tell me a little bit. You, 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 <laughs> this was at Utah State University, where I'm talking to you from. I know, I know. Well, and we have a great fondness for Utah State, and actually, a couple of my kids are graduates uh, from Utah State. But he um, he was on the football team. She was uh, a former rodeo queen from Big Piney, Wyoming, and he had been asked to sort of judge this. Uh, I don't know if it's still there. It was called the Sponsor Corps. I mean, I think it was sort of like a little drill team thing. Or not little. It was a big deal. And uh, so they had the girls, like, come out and twirl a rifle and salute and do that sort of thing. My dad saw my mom, and he was he was immediately smitten. So he tried to get her um, attention, got uh, uh, lined up on a blind date with her, and she proceeded to introduce him all night long as Liddell Anderson, who played <laughs> basketball at Utah State. <laughs> so, I don't know. I didn't get off to the greatest of starts, but he was pretty persistent, and they ended up with each other, and we're all glad for that. <laughs> well, in fact, um, your mother's father, your grandfather, right? Yeah. Not not LDS? He worried. Not LDS. He, he yeah. predicted you go down to Utah, you're going to end up with one of those guys named Lavelle or Liddell or Lamar, you know. <laughs> or a Garth or a Garth. Right. Those were the other two names he came up with. Yeah, and uh, she proved him right. Yeah. So there you go. <laughs> Tell me about your uh, your grandmother uh, up in Wyoming. Uh, she she's seems, Oh, my great-grandma? Uh, great-grandma. She seems larger than life. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, she has sort of legendary status in our family at this point. She she was my mother's grandmother. My mother was um, the only child of an only child. And and she grew up there in Big Piney, Wyoming. And my great-grandma, Pat, who I still remember, because apparently I come from a long line of child brides, she uh, was just um, crazy about my mom. And, and she, but she was also... Wow, okay, she was the game warden up there in Sublette County, and, and, and the way I've been told, she could sort of outride and outgun any man who ever showed up. And she slept with a shotgun. I mean, she was just that kind of sort of crazy frontiers woman. And when my mom brought my dad home, my dad was just this sort of Utah farm boy, and, and he'd never really been hunting or fishing or anything like that. My great-grandma took him. She just was appalled, and so she tried to teach him how to fish, and like I say, my dad just stood on the banks of the river and cast off into the bushes behind him the whole time. <laughs> but they, uh, uh, in the end, they came to appreciate him. <laughs> you have a, one of your columns, you talk about phrases that you've inherited, uh, and your great-grandmother's yeah. was, I'm going to get things, I'm going to get lined up today. Yep, and she never did, but <laughs> uh, it's a phrase that, that my mom and I use with each other t- all the time, you know, I'll call her and say, well, I'm going to get lined up today. And uh, what that meant is that you were going to get organized, that you were just going to finally impose some order on all the chaos around you. And, uh, you know, that, 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 that's a worthy goal. I, I don't know that I'll ever accomplish that, but we do use that all the time. You say your great-grandmother usually just embraced the chaos, but sometimes she'd say, I'm, yeah. I'm going to get lined up today. Yep, yep. Uh, and I guess, exactly. that's, I guess that's motherhood, right? Uh, 
yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's exactly right. Uh, tell me about the this is the title of the book, your your dad's phrase. I'll tell you what. Yeah. I'll tell you what. So I just have so many memories of my dad, like, you know, there'd be a conversation, people would be going back and forth, and we would, uh, you know, my dad would be listening, and then he'd go, well, I'll tell you what. And then he would tell us what, you know, he'd tell us what he thought or whatever. And and I, I realized, you know, once somebody is no longer with you, you start sensing the things that you're no longer hearing. And and I realized that that was something that he just said all the time. And it's funny, he loved Johnny Cash. I was just listening to the Johnny Cash recording at San Quentin, and Johnny Cash uses that phrase. And I thought, oh, how appropriate. I felt like my dad was riding shotgun in the car with me as <laughs> I was listening to that. <laughs> Your dad was an, an avid, passionate Willie Nelson fan, right? Oh, my goodness. The only time I ever saw my dad just act like a fanboy was uh, Willie came to play at Sundance, and um, I had just left my... I knew my dad was there. We weren't sitting by each other, but, you know, I walked in to go get some refreshments, and I found my dad hanging outside of, uh, I guess, where Willie's trailer would have been, and he had on a Willie Nelson belt buckle, (laughs) and he had on a pair of cowboy boots. And I thought, wow, I, I've never seen this side of my dad. So that it, it's sort of a memory I treasure of him, that he was just super starstruck. Hmm. Uh, somewhere in the book you write that uh, when your dad passed, uh, a, a friend, someone advised you, oh, keep him close, yeah. right? Remember him, yep. remember these phrases. Uh, what if you talk a little bit yep. about that and, what, and, how, and how you do that? You know, I, I this uh, lovely neighbor did, did send us a card that I just have really loved. In fact, I keep it on my desk and I say it now. He said, uh, you know, just just keep your dad. In fact, I'm just trying to see if I can find exactly what it said because it's so lovely. Um, he said, keep your dad alive. Speak his name often. Uh, bring him into your conversation. Bring him into your dreams and, and, and keep him alive for you that way. And so I do find that I try to do that uh, by by telling stories about him, by saying things that he used to say, listening to the music that he loved. Um, and, and it's interesting. I will say this. I've probably talked more about my dad in the last year and a half than I ever did growing up as an adult because it was, I, you know, I always just loved my dad and really, really adored my dad. But I also didn't want to trade in on his success or his name. So, so um, even though I'd written this column for a long time for the Salt Lake Tribune, you know, after he passed, then they asked me to write a call about him, and I did. And in a way, I was pleased to know that a lot of people didn't even know that we were related. But but since then, I have spoken about him a lot and just kept his legacy for me um, alive by telling stories about him. And it's it's been very, very tender to me, too. And then people come up and tell me stories about him, which has also been a pleasure. Mm. And there, you know, in a way, I mean, he was very famous, at least in yeah. Utah and, and in the football world. Yeah. Uh, yep. But we have this vision of him as this uh, stoic guy on the sidelines. Uh, later in life, yeah. he, you know, he'd let his hair down, you know, with Ron McBride yeah. and others, you know. But uh, yeah. um, tell me about his laugh. Oh, my gosh. He just had the best laugh, laugh ever. Um, he would just, what would happen is, is that his... Um, his face would crinkle up. He would be listening, and then his face would sort of crinkle up, and then there was this just sort of silent, you know, laugh, and then all of a sudden it would just, 
just explode. And he would sort of bend over and he would sort of clap his hands and and then he would just sort of like, uh, uh, I, it was just a huge visceral physical laugh. And it was just a joy to watch that happen. Mm-hmm. And I realized as a little girl that I would try to get him to laugh sometimes. And he was generous that way. I mean, I'm sure I was just obnoxious, but but I would try to say something or do something. Then I'd look out of the corner of my eye to see if he was, if I could make him laugh with something. And, you know, it's great. He was good at laughing at little kids' jokes. Mm. Another of his phrases you, in this column about the phrases, uh, yeah. you say that, uh, I guess, a, a cold winter morning, didn't want to get out of bed. What, what, did, what, oh, did, he, yeah. what did he tell you? Well, you know what? I, I, he, he would often say, you know, as long as my neck is warm, the rest of me is warm. And so in that essay, talk about how just one February morning, I just, I just felt done. I just thought, I, I don't want to get out of bed. I don't want to have to face anything I have to face. And then it's like I almost heard my dad's voice saying, hey, you know what? As long as my neck is warm, the rest of me is, uh, the rest of me is warm. So I got out of bed. I wrapped a scarf around my neck and then carried on. And uh, that's one of the things about him is that he just he carried on no matter what. And now, what a what a great example that was. You write very uh, poignantly about uh, your, uh, I guess, uh, maybe your first serious bout with depression. Yeah. Yep. Your teaching school yep. at the time. Your 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 principal. Uh, you say it's remarkable looking back. It didn't call your husband. Uh, called your dad. Yeah, that's exactly right. What happened was that I, uh, in my early twenties, like I've I've really experienced. Uh, that's a very serious depression off and on during my um, adult life. But the very first bad thing hit when I was in my early 20s. I was teaching high school, and I just, like, sank into this terrible depression. And my principal was this just this lovely man named John Matthews, who's also passed. But he recognized what was happening because his his uh, he'd had family with this. This was in the 70s, and so... You know, I think we're more cognizant of these things now, and we talk about these things much more now. But back then, not quite so much. So John called my dad because he just thought, you know, probably that my father was in a position to deal with with a, a daughter who was suffering from this better than my my cute young husband. Um, and so what happened is my parents, both of them, jumped on this immediately, arranged for me to see a doctor, and then uh, my dad would leave the football field. I mean, this was right at the height of spring uh, practice, and drive me to the doctor, and then he would just wait out in the hallway for me. And I appreciated it at the time, but in retrospect, I really appreciate what that all meant, mm. um, that he was just so willing to get the help that we needed, that he was there, that he was very present. And then, and then he took the opportunity to educate himself about uh, depressive and anxiety disorders, and I can remember saying to uh, him, saying to me sometimes after our experience that uh, that he was able to maybe kind of help some players that that had those issues. He came to recognize those things himself. Hmm. Tell me about. I don't know how much interaction you had with him while he was actually at work. I, I wonder how he was with these players. Yeah. Well, you know what? Uh, after he died, it was very touching. Um, we had, uh, you know, this was at the time of the, sort of the public memorial and the funeral and all that kind of stuff. So there was a public memorial in Provo. Then that night, the university hosted a an open house for uh, all his former players. And I think 
I mean, I, I could be exaggerating this, but I think I heard that like about 500 people showed up and they were all in the Cougar Club room down there, um, just sort of swapping stories and everything. Um, I mean, he, he definitely expected results and he could be pretty darn tough. But the thing that he did was is that he held individual interviews with those guys all the time so that, that even if you were a kid who wasn't playing very much, you felt recognized by him and, and, uh, and I think that that paid huge dividends in terms of people feeling like they had a personal connection with them. He knew their names. He knew their families. He knew stuff about them that was individual and unique. And, you know, you know what a great idea. So, uh, Let's take a break. We're talking with uh, Ann Edwards-Cannon. Uh, there's a new collection out of her Salt Lake Tribune columns. It's called, I'll Tell You What. That's a phrase used by her dad, Lavelle Edwards, a famous... Uh, former football coach at uh, Brigham Young University. Uh, we'll talk more about uh, her dad. We'll get into talking about uh, travel. Uh, travel, that's a big thing with you, right? Uh, yeah. And and Canon. In fact, yeah. you and some friends walked across, what, northern <laughs> northern England? Scotland? Yeah, northern yeah. England. We did the Hadrian Wall Walk. Yeah. So we walked from the East Coast to the West Coast. And uh, there's some culture clash stuff I'd like to get into uh, that uh, okay. is a part of traveling. Uh, when we come back uh, early in the next segment, I'd like to have you read uh, a, uh, a a column which uh, illustrates your your dad's, uh, I guess, his sense of humor and his parenting style. It's called "I'll Have a Flying Car, Please," uh, page one ninety seven. So I'll alert you. <laughs> okay, I'll have that alert, ready for it. Alert you to that. Uh, more with Anne Cannon. Her book is called "I'll Tell You What." It's being published by uh, the King's English uh, Bookshop in Salt Lake City. More following this break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Utah Festival Opera and Musical Theater, June 23rd through August 4th in Logan. Full orchestra, concerts, workshops, and performances of The Barber of Seville, The Secret Garden, and more. Details and tickets at utahfestival.org. When Stephanie's son was diagnosed with autism, she felt scared and desperate. Then she found a kind of alternative therapy called brain balance. It was pricey. But what are you going to do? Maybe work a few more years, take a little bit out of your retirement so that he's able to have a better life going forward? An investigation into the science behind the popular program. This afternoon on All Things Considered from NPR News. Join us today from 3 to 6.30 with Shalane Smith and Edom on Utah Public Radio. Next time on Philosophy Talk, the logic of regret. If you regret doing something, you can't be happy about any of the consequences of it. So if you're happy about something, you can't reasonably regret any of the events that led to it? Exactly. I wouldn't exist if there hadn't been an Irish potato famine. Do you regret my existence, or are you happy about the Irish potato famine? I regret that you can't think more clearly about these things. A logic of regret, next time on Philosophy Talk. Join us Tuesday at 4 a.m. on Utah Public Radio. Thanks for listening to Access U Time. Tom Williams, our guest for the hours, and Edwards Cannon. Uh, you uh, perhaps know her from Salt Lake Tribune columns, and uh, those columns have been collected. A new collection uh, titled "I'll Tell You What," and uh, <laughs> that is being published by the King's English. So, um, and Cannon, you've for a long time you worked there at the King's English. Yeah, I have since really the late 80s. I, I published a young adult novel in 1989, and Betsy Burton had a an event for me. And after it was all finished, she said, oh, hey, why don't you work here? And I said, okay. So, uh, you know, I've been there off and on, but I've worked part-time at King's English for years now. Tell me a bit about your uh, your books. You'd uh, Children, young adult, 
mostly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I I uh, was always interested in kids' books, and so I pub I published over the years uh, everything from picture books on up to young adult novels. Haven't done that actively for maybe the last you know seven or eight years, but but yeah, I've I've published kids' books and really enjoy them, which is why they make me work in the kids' room at the King's English. <laughs> they, they make you work there. That's, that's a hard, hard uh-huh. work, probably. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, so it's, it's kind of, I don't know, using different muscles or the same, the, writing the books and uh, writing the columns? Yeah, oh, that's a great question. So a little bit of both. Um, I, I, it's a different audience, of course, so I'm aware of that. The books are, are longer than the column, but... But I think that the the discipline of of having to get something done and getting it done on time, you know, that's a skill that's useful in both of those worlds for sure. And then anytime you write anything, you you, for me, one of the reasons I like to write is it increases my power of observations. I mean, um, I'm just watching things to figure out how they work and looking for the right details. So yeah, that's part of it. Now, uh, in your I guess in your introduction, you are. Acknowledgement, maybe I'm not sure where it is, but you, mm-hmm. you talk about, the, and this is what all writers do, and you use the word exploit, right? Yeah, thank you to your family yeah. and friends for, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> for allowing them to exploit the, allowing you to exploit them. That I guess that's yeah. uh, the hazard of being uh, close to a writer. Oh, it's so true, and people lots of times will say to me, "Now, don't write about this." So, uh, yeah, I think it's risky business knowing a writer. <laughs> um, there's a collection, um, What's a Mother to Do? This is from 1997. Yeah. Uh, for, uh, that's from your Desert News columns, is it, or what? Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, those are, those are, well, no, actually, you know what? Those are actually from um, the very first place I did that kind of call for. It was called Parent Express. Okay. And those were mostly, yeah, those were mostly columns I wrote when my kids were really pretty young and right after that was published i went to the desert news mm. the, the what stood out here um is you, you describe this as a collection of irma bombeck-esque essays examining the craziness yeah. of tens ordinary events and that that i hadn't thought of irma bombeck for a while but uh, boy what a what a wonderful writer yeah it's funny because when i go out and talk about my column i i don't even reference her very much anymore because a lot of people who are younger than you know i am um don't even recognize who that name, and I think, oh, cause she invented that type of column. So, you know, it's sad that names yeah, that is. don't get recognized. That is, that is yeah. Uh, by the way, uh, people can go to aecanon.com to find out uh, a lot uh-huh. more, aecanon.com. And we're talking with A.E. Cannon and Edwards uh, Cannon here. She's <laughs> joining us from uh, a garage in, uh, what, Newport Beach? In, in Newport Beach, and I keep having kids poke their head in here <laughs> trying to get my attention. So for, anyway, for, for good. <laughs> that's what's going on here. Uh, so a, a section of these columns uh, features Ann Edwards Cannon's uh, famous father, Lavelle Edwards, a longtime football coach at uh, Brigham Young University. Um, so I wonder if I could have you read this uh, this column. It's titled, I'll Have a Flying Car, Please. Yeah. Thank you for giving me this opportunity. I, I, I love this memory of my dad. So here I go. When I was in grade school, our family purchased a light green Volkswagen Beetle, and it was the coolest car on the block by far because it could fly. Yes, you read that correctly. We had a flying car at our house. How did we know it was a flying car? Because our dad told us so. He dropped the information casually like it was no big deal, like everyone else on our street had flying cars parked in front of their houses too. 
uh, we have a new car, and by the way, it can fly. So, yeah, I guess I'll go mow the lawn now. Wait, my brothers and I said, our car can fly? Our dad assured us this was true because our car had a flubber gear, just like the car in that movie about the absent-minded professor. That's how they made cars in Germany, with flubber gears. He said he'd take us for a spin around the neighborhood if we wanted him to, which, of course, we did. Because, come on, who's going to pass up a chance to fly over your friend's house in a light green Volkswagen Beetle? So you can roll down your window and go, bet your car can't fly like this, you suckers. We rushed out of the house and piled into the VW, where our dad told us the rules. The car could fly, of course. That's why he bought it. But it would only fly if we closed our eyes and held on tight. If we opened our eyes, even a little bit, we'd crash land, which, of course, would not be awesome. So we closed our eyes and listened as our dad launched the car into orbit. He raised the engine and made whooshing noises and imitated voices of wonderstruck people on the ground below. It's a bird! It's a plane! Oh, my gosh! It's a flying Volkswagen! The ride eventually came to an end. We touched down, opened our eyes, and spent the rest of the day telling everybody who would listen about our brand-new car. You know the one that could fly us to the moon. Years later, I would relate this story with mock outrage. Everybody always says what a great guy my dad is, but seriously, what kind of man would do that to a bunch of innocent little kids? And then I would do a riff or two on how dumb my brothers and I were. How dumb were we? We were so dumb. If you'd ask us which president was buried in Grant's tomb, we would have said Abraham Lincoln. We were so dumb. If you'd asked us when the War of 1812 took place, we would have said, we don't know. We were so dumb. If you'd ask us if those jokes I had just made were funny, we would have laughed some more. And we were so dumb. If you'd asked us if cars came from Germany, could fly, we would have said, jawohl, but only if our eyes were closed. The story always got a few laughs, and it still makes me smile. So does my dad. Even in his 80s, that guy still has a knack for bringing the party with him. Here's another thing. Occasionally, when I'm in the mood, I like to look up and imagine what an actual car full of actual kids streaking across the sky might look like. Oh, my gosh, I would say, a flying Volkswagen. Thanks for that, Dad. You know, the magic part. <laughs> yeah, that's, uh, you know, magic for the kids, right? That's, uh, I guess, yeah. that was his purpose. Yep. Yeah. He was good at that. Yeah. Um. I wonder if you tell tell me a little bit about uh, I guess the, the time when your dad was declining. We, you know, you know, we all have to go through this. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. He he would he was cold all the time, sitting next to the fire, and yep. and I guess he yeah. Uh, you love peaches. I guess he loved peaches. Yeah. So so I do tell a story in here. So I mean, it's interesting being here in Newport Beach right now because it was it's the very place where we're staying right now where. His decline sort of began, I think. He, he uh, I, I don't know for sure, but my guess is he may have had a little mini stroke or something like that because it was, it was pretty definite. So we were here in June, and, you know, we went back to Provo, and, and that, that summer he just, you know, was, was, was in fact declining. And my mom was just such a trooper, was uh, – taking care of him, trying to get him to eat, you know, all that stuff. He'd sit by the fireplace because he was always cold. I live in Salt Lake, but I was able to go down to Provo quite a bit that summer and spend time with him, and I'm just so grateful uh, through the summer and then through the fall. And, of course, he passed in December. But 
but uh, I was down there with him once, and it was probably early October, and and um, and he really was not very well. Um, and and I, but I was just saying, oh my gosh, I just really failed this summer because I didn't eat enough peaches. Um, I, I just love, love, love fresh peaches, and and so did he. You know, like I say, he was the son of a fruit farmer. He loved fresh fruit his whole life, mm. um, and. So anyway, we we weren't crazy about him driving right then, but um, I noticed he'd slipped away, and then he showed back up, walked back into the house. He had one of those white bags, you know, with the handle, and it was full of peaches. And he said, uh, you know, these are for you. And so he had gone down probably like to Allred's or someplace like that on University Avenue and found the last remaining peaches he could find and brought them home. And I just thought that that was just so typical of of, uh, of who my dad was. Mm. Uh, there's a there's a wonderful story where I think uh, well I, I, you're on the you're on the trip with him on the drive. He uh, yeah his dad is declining right, and so he takes his dad for a drive. Yeah, yeah. This also tender. This is where I talk about how roles change in a family dynamic. So this was when my dad was still coaching and was still you know very much in himself, but his own father was declining. So he picked, I went with him. He and I picked up my grandfather and uh, took him for a ride, you know, around Utah County to a lot of the places that my grandfather would have known when he was a young man. And it was, it was, you know, it was clear that my grandfather was, was not all there mentally and but just so kind. He was just so sweet. The older he got, the sweeter it got. Anyway, he looked over at my dad, who was driving the car, and and it was like I could tell he was trying to figure out who my dad was. And then this big smile uh, kind of, you know, shows up on my grandfather's face. He kind of points at him a little bit, and he goes, Oh, I know. You're the one who played basketball. And... uh it, my dad probably did play some basketball, but, but that's certainly not, you know, what he was known for. My dad just smiled back at him, and he goes, yep, I'm the one who played basketball. <laughs> and uh, I just love that moment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that's that's interesting and very poignant when those roles reverse, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Yeah. Um, uh, tell me a bit about your, your mom, maybe to get it, get us into this, uh, this subject. You have a, a wonderful column about... Uh, uh, two accommodators uh, uh, <laughs> yeah. on a trip, uh, and the accommodators are you and your mom. Yeah, so we, uh, this is after my dad died, but we were going down to St. George together to stay in their place there, and, and I just talked about how impossible it is when you have two accommodators, in other words, people who have a very strong desire to accommodate, um, you know, when you're the only two people along on the trip. And and I just talk about how uh, we'd say, well, do you want to play cards tonight? No. If you want to play cards tonight, do you want to play cards tonight? Well, I don't know. Do you, you know, and uh, should we stop at Fillmore and buy some corn nuts? Oh, yeah, that'd be fun. But do you want to stop at Fillmore and buy some corn nuts? And, and really, by the time you make those decisions, you're already in St. George. So uh, we, we, we just, uh, somebody's got to, like, come along with us and tell us what to do, I think, <laughs> the next time we take a trip together. <laughs> Hire somebody to come along and make those decisions. Yeah, right exactly. Yeah, yeah. In my family, I, we always referred to it as we need, to, we need to elect a president, you know. 
just to make those decisions. <laughs> okay, because, that's good. Did yeah. you ever do it? Did it work uh, out uh, for no, you? No, no. I mean, we're all accommodating and, and uh, couldn't agree on who should be the president, right? So that's, <laughs> you, you need yeah. somebody assertive along on those trips. Uh, let's take yes, another. Let's take another uh, break. When we come back with uh, Ann Edwards Cannon, um, I'll have you uh, uh, prepare to read uh, page forty-six. Large dog. Um, oh, good. Okay. This, this is about your. What do you call it? Newfoundland. A big Newfoundland. A big yep, Newfoundland. That's what we've got. And if you go to aecannon.com, there's a picture of Ann Cannon with her Newfoundland, and that is a big dog. That's a very big dog. That's huge. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so and as you, as you introduce yourself on your website, you uh, say, um, you live with a Newfoundland dog that weighs 180 pounds, living with a Newfoundland dog mm-hmm. that size is like living with a donkey in your house, a small donkey, <laughs> but still is what you write. So let's uh, learn about yep. your Newfoundland and uh, much more. I, I want to talk about the travel as well. The book is, I'll tell you what, it's a collection of Ann Edwards Cannon's, uh, uh, Salt Lake Tribune uh, columns. It's being published by the King's English and we'll have more following this break. Thank you. Janine Shepard was a champion skier, hoping to go to the Olympics. But that all changed when she was hit by a truck. To lose the thing that you think defines you is the very thing that will teach you not just who you are, but who you're not. I'm Guy Raz, the person you were and the person you become. That's next time on the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Join us this morning at 10 on Utah Public Radio. The macroeconomic outlook in this country is complicated, but still, if you're a foreign investor, America is the place to be. I think these companies are resigned to going through whatever they need to get through in order to be in the United States, so they'll they'll deal with it. I'm Kai Rizdal. Nobody said making money here was easy, but still, they come. That's next time on Marketplace. Join us tonight at 6.30 on Utah Public Radio. American veterans returning to Vietnam have found devastating effects of the war still present. Some families actually have children uh, in which all of them are afflicted by one kind of birth defect or another related to Agent Orange. I'm Sarah McConnell. Join me for With Good Reason. Wake up with Good Reason Wednesday at 4 a.m. on Utah Public Radio. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're spending the hour with Ann Edwards Cannon. Uh, she writes uh, books for children and uh, young adults. She works at the King's English Bookshop. She'll, you'll find her in the uh, children's section uh, there. And she writes columns for the Salt Lake Tribune. You probably are familiar with those. King's English has collected those columns in a volume they've published. It's called I'll Tell You What. That's a phrase used by her famous father, BYU football <laughs> coach Lavelle Edwards. I want to talk just a little bit more about your mother, Ann Edwards Cannon. Um, she, your father freely acknowledged, right, that, that she was very important, your mother was, to yeah. uh, to his career. Yeah. yeah. She was. She, uh, I, uh, and, and, and I don't think lots of times she gets enough credit for that, but she, she was just there every step along the way. And, and I remember him once telling me that um, it, it was, it was easy, easier for him to leave because he knew that everything at home was in really good hands. She was pretty terrific that way and was kind of a team mother to the players and to the players' wives because BYU is a little unique that way that they, in that they had so many married players. 
Uh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, so she would. Uh, yeah, uh, be important that way. Um, yeah. Another fact about your family: that not every family in Utah has their regular dentist in San Francisco. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, my dad um, played uh, football with a guy named uh, Devan Robbins, who they were just great friends. So uh, Devan was up at Utah State too. He went on to become a dentist, and he settled in the Bay Area. And um, and my brothers and I just had terrible teeth, so somehow I guess it was cheaper for my parents to throw us all in the station wagon and drive, you know, across the Nevada desert, and then have the van do our teeth for free on a Sunday afternoon. I didn't even know until I got married and went to another dentist that there were such things as dental assistants, or that you could have a bowl full of running water and all of that kind of stuff. So that was a revelation to me. But, uh, yeah. So, anyway. And Devan did the very generous man. He he did a lot of uh, work for radio. people. <laughs> yeah, he was. A lot of stuff for others. He was just really, really a good a good guy that way. One of your nieces or nephews popped in, I guess, there? Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's a little like that video of the guy whose kids keep running in. That's He'll right. Just, uh, That's right. Hold <laughs> on for just a second. Just a sec. Hey, John? Yeah. I am on the radio. Can you help me keep people uh, someplace else? Okay, stand up. <laughs> Did that take care of it? Yeah, and and uh, you know, it's, it's uh, you're nicer yeah. about it than the guy in the video. I think that uh, <laughs> yeah, which went, went viral. That was quite the deal. I'd, I'd forgotten that. <laughs> no, yeah, uh, yeah, it's a little like that. So. Yeah. Ann yeah. Edwards Cannon is, is uh, joining. Your brother's on it. Um, yeah. Is is that the brother you used to dress up in a in a dress? Uh, no, no, that, different one. This is, uh, that that was another brother. That one was Jimmy. He's here too, but he's he's. He's uh, on the other side of the house right okay, now. Okay, T- tell us that story. This is th- this shows a lot of imagination. I guess pre- presages that you're going to become a writer. Yeah. So I uh, desperately wanted a sister, and when my youngest brother was born, um, much you know, I was disappointed to discover, in fact, that it was another brother. And and I think I remember trying to sell him to a friend of mine or something like that, thinking <laughs> you know, maybe if I don't have this brother, I can get a sister, but that didn't work out. So as he, as he grew up, I used to dress him up like a girl. Like I had this, I'd put him in one of my dresses and had this plastic wig, and I would put it on him. I mean, this sounds so mean now that I'm talking about it, but um, I would only respond if, uh, if uh, he would answer to the name Judy, and then I would make him go out and get the mail so that my neighbors <laughs> would think that I had a sister instead of a brother. And I have a really great picture in the book of... Of my sister Judy. Yeah, so, yeah, there yes, you go. You, yes, you do. It's quite the picture. Um, yeah, that's that's quite the imagination. You you wanted people to believe you had a sister, so you you uh-huh. went to these extremes, and, and your brother, yeah. I guess, survived this. And he, he apparently, I mean, not, he is here at the beach house with me, yeah, talking to me good. most of the time. So good. that's good. Good. Um, I wonder. You know, uh, pets are important to your your family, I guess. Um, yeah. Including your yeah. your large, very large Newfoundland, and again, if you go to aecanon.com, the website, you'll see a picture of Anne Edwards Cannon with her Newfoundland. I wonder if you could read this uh, column. It's called "Living Large with a Large Dog." Yep, I will. And, and uh, we've now we're now on our second Newfoundland. The Newfoundland that's on the website um, died about two years ago, oh, okay. and, and then apparently we lost our minds and immediately went out and got another one. So. Um, <laughs> But this is, this is about the first Newfoundland Zora. It's called Living Large with a Large Dog. 
I went to a professional conference last week where I wanted to appear, you know, professional. So I went around wearing my professional name tag, giving people professional handshakes while making professional-type observations such as, I sure hope they feed us during the breaks. Anyway, I totally nailed the professional thing until I went into the bathroom and noticed I had dried dog slobber on my jacket. A lot of it. Oh, well, hello there, folks. Nothing says professional like dried dog slobber on a jacket. You couldn't miss it. I'm sure people didn't, except for me. Apparently, I forgot to check myself in the mirror one last time after Newfoundland Zora gave me a goodbye kiss earlier that morning. Okay, you two have wandered around public with large animal slobber on your clothing, and who hasn't? You may be interested in the following tips for living with a dog so huge and so hairy that people think Bigfoot resides at your house. You're welcome. One, always check yourself in the mirror one last time after your dog gives you a goodbye kiss. Two, wipe your dog's mouth often, preferably with a beach towel. Three, invest in an industrial strength vacuum cleaner because there will be dog hair, people. Oh, yes, there will be hair. Four, also invest in an industrial strength washing machine, you know, like the kind they use in institutions such as hospitals or prisons. You're going to need that, too. I'm not kidding. You'll find drool everywhere, on the floor, on the walls, even on the ceiling. So, yeah, have fun with that. Drool isn't the only issue you'll encounter when living with a giant dog, however. For one thing, giant dogs take up a lot of room. When Zora stretches out on the floor, she pretty much reaches from here to mainland China. Furthermore, she doesn't always get up and move when you tell her to. It's not that she's willfully disobedient. Zora's just really, really busy lying there. Just lying there, in fact, features prominently on her daily to-do list. In light of these things, plenty of people wonder why we bother with a big dog. One thing's certain, it's not for protection. If someone broke into our house, Zora would uh, lift her head, look at the intruder, and go, seriously, dude, you don't have anything better to do with your time? Then she'd drop her head and go straight back to sleep. So it's hard to explain why we own such a big dog. Still, I can't imagine our lives without her. There's something comforting about her presence. It's solid, really solid, and huge, really huge. I love her chill attitude, too, which is like, hey, don't sweat the small stuff. And it's all small stuff, except for me, just lying here in the middle of your kitchen, hoping to ingest some stray potato chips in much the same way a well ingests plankton. Also, her eyes. When Zora leans into me and looks up, my heart melts. Not unlike cheese fondue in that avocado green fondue pot my mom had back in the 1970s. I'm all yours, Zora Expression says, and you know what? She is right. <laughs> That's wonderful. Uh, Thank I, you, Tom. I guess a, a chihuahua wouldn't do it for your family. Huh? <laughs> you know, here's the thing. I think I could live with any kind of dog at all. I, I have people in my family, though, that are a little bit more specific in their taste. Mm-hmm. What is it about it? I guess uh, dogs just really good friend, right, or a really good companion. Yeah, you know, we've just always had my mom. You know, this I, I have a uh, a thing in here about my mom and what my mom truly believes, and and she always believes everybody should have a dog, and so we've always had them. My dad always used to say, you know, when he was younger, he felt like. You know, first came the kids, then came the dog, then came her parents, and then finally he showed up on the list somewhere. <laughs> I think that changed, but, you know. 
Uh, you uh, you have a whole section about Utah County, where you where you grew yeah. up, of course, and you you discovered when you moved to Salt Lake County that uh, oh. <laughs> that wasn't cool to be from Utah County. Yeah, no kidding. Yeah, still still not cool. Apparently, so hmm. I I love Salt Lake and I love my Salt Lake friends, but there there there's a little bit of you know thinking they're better than everybody else. That's that's for sure. Hmm. And you you have a you have a column about uh, you know going back and uh, you know seeing mm-hmm. things uh, through an adult size. I want to uh, on that yeah. subject. Uh, I want to go to your blog, which is at uh, you can find this at aecanon.com. You have a blog post here from May, uh, a trip you took with I'm so one of your sons. You even know that I have a blog. My gosh, <laughs> it's a kind of a lazy blog, but thanks, Tom. I'm, I'm very flattered. Well, it's, it's a lot more active than some blogs I've seen. Um, but yeah. you, you take a trip. I guess you're taking one of your sons back to D.C., right? And you, you go yeah. through Wyoming. Um, yeah. I want to read this this passage. You you uh, I guess you you stop, or at least you're you're having some memories as you go through Wyoming. You're yeah. you're uh, your mom grew up in Wyoming, right? Yep. Um, yep. So you say, would I like for time to stop? No, because then I would never have had the pleasure of knowing family and friends and even myself in different stages of our New Age World Alert uh, journeys. Still, I wouldn't mind sitting one more time on the edge of the conversations I used to hear my grandparents and parents having when we visited them in the summer as the long green grasses grew. That's the tension, right? Mm. You, you sometimes want to go mm-hmm. back, but, the, but, then you, but then you don't. Yeah, exactly. And I think that people who write, uh, who are kind of memoir writers, which, you know, essentially, I guess that's what I am when I write about uh, family and stuff, is that that is an ongoing tension. You want to keep the past alive. And, and there are times when you're very nostalgic for it, but you, you realize um, you would have missed out on all the stuff that came next if you do that. That's a good way to put it, Tom. Mm-hmm. Thank you. And then uh, the previous blog is quite poignant. It's about Memorial Day, and you quote one of your granddaughters. Mm-hmm. Um, who, who, do you remember what <laughs> <Yeah>. she said? <laughs> yeah, she uh, uh, and I wrote it down there. So correct me if I. She said something like she wanted to go back to the garden where all the dead people were. Right. They, my right. my son and his wife had taken her to like cemetery, of course, to like put flowers on graves and stuff. And and I love that the idea that it's a garden where all the dead people are. Mm-hmm. So. But important, important to you know to go and to remember, you know, like your your yeah. neighbor wrote in the card. Well, we're yeah. running out of time. I want to make sure we get this in. You you do a lot of travel. I guess you you say uh-huh. you obviously travel a lot with your parents, and you, yeah. you married a guy who liked to travel. Yeah, uh, got into your your blood. I wonder if we could, I could have you read. It's page one forty eight. Thirty things I learned while walking across England. We made reference to this earlier. Yeah, yeah. Oh, well, thank you. I just uh, thank you for giving me the opportunity to do this. That England trip was really, really something else. So this is called 30 Things I Learned While Walking Across England. The English woman with the tight blonde perm yanked her terrier's leash and looked at us like we were dead crazy when she found out we were walking the length of Hadrian's Wall. She took a deep drag on her cigarette, exhaled, and grumbled, well, it's the coldest, wettest summer here in 260 years, yeah. It was raining there in Newcastle on Tyne when she said this. But our little party, Donnie Perkins, Caitlin Bear, Cynthia Noble, and I pressed on. After all, we traveled to northern England to walk from coast to coast, and walk we did on pavement through fields and pastures, over craggy peaks and across windy moors and marshes. Along the way, I learned a few things. One, people from England and the United States do not speak the same language. 
Two, this is doubly true of people from Scotland and the United States. Three, the Scottish have a reputation for being dour. I never saw evidence of this. The Scots we met were friendly and full of fun. Four, especially that middle-aged member of a punk rock band who wore a kilt and sported a massive mohawk. He and his wife checked up on their kids back home by stalking them on Facebook. Five, the claims of terrible British food are greatly exaggerated. Brits, in fact, excel at comfort food, steak and ale pie, fish and chips, fabulous curries. Also, their cheeses and tea treats, scones, shortbread cakes are to die for. Six, speaking of which, the Cadbury chocolate in England tastes better than the Cadbury chocolate here. Seven, you either love bagpipe music or you don't. I triple love it. Eight, bending your left knee when you pose for a photo does not make you look slimmer. It just looks like you're bending your left knee. Nine, if you ask for a napkin in a British restaurant in 2012, the server will bring you a napkin. This did not used to be the case. Ten, it is easier to slog through a wet sheep pasture than a wet cow pasture. Who knew? Eleven, it's always a little troubling when you smell something bad and realize that after spending six days walking through pastures, it's probably you. Twelve, which reminds me, it's not the miles alone that make a long walk challenging. It's the condition of those miles. Thirteen, so here's the deal. Sometimes the reality of an experience doesn't coincide with the expectation. Fourteen, do yourself a favor and adapt quickly to your new reality, especially when involving rain. Fifteen, stinging nettle is aptly named, hello, it stings. But the people at Hadrian's Hotel were right. Rubbing the affected area, i.e. my right calf, with a dark green tree leaf relieves the pain. I know, voodoo. Sixteen, the ritual known as afternoon tea restores both body and soul. Seventeen, there are tourists who walk Hadrian's Wall in togas. Everywhere I looked on this trip, I saw guys in skirts. Eighteen, if you travel to the U.K. these days, more than one citizen will tell you that England has changed and not for the better. Nineteen, there are undoubtedly people in northern England and Scotland who are excited about the upcoming Olympic Games. We walked there when the, the Games were in England, but we sure didn't meet any. Twenty, seriously, there is nothing prettier than a country co- uh, co- cottage garden in full bloom. Twenty-one, what with cows mooing here and sheep buying there, the countryside isn't all that quiet. Twenty-two, speaking of which, don't laugh, but sheep can feel surprisingly menacing when you're standing in the thick of them on a windy moor and there are literally no other human beings around for miles and miles. Twenty-three, you need an advanced degree in engineering to figure out how to turn on a British shower. Twenty-four, also, we only saw one washcloth on our trip. Can somebody from the U.K. please tell me where all the damn washcloths went? 25. Pleasant walking companions. Those you see every day, as well as the ones you meet along the way, are a joy to be with. 26. If you want to do the wall walk for yourself, I'd advise you to travel from east to west. The Romans built the wall that way, and as our guidebook says, the scenery improves when you head in that direction. 27. Have faith in the journey you've chosen, 28. However, you might not... Oh, there goes a street cleaner. Hang on just a second. (laughs) Okay. Uh, Okay, 27. Have faith in the journey you've chosen, 28. However, you might not want to take that journey during the rainiest summer in 260 years, 29. Still, 
I would not have missed the experience for the world. The endless vistas of field, stone, and sky will be with me always. 30, which reminds me, it's easy to look at your feet the entire time you walk across England. Remember to look up. You'll be glad you did. Wonderful. That's uh, There's something about travel, isn't there, that, that renew, I know, renews your perspective, right? e- even when you have, you know, <laughs> experiences that, that, that try you. Uh, well, right. we are we are at the end of our time. We didn't even get talking to, uh, about running. You've run the St. George Marathon. You've run, I guess, ever since yeah. your dad brought you some Nikes, right? Yep, yep, yep. Uh, he uh, he turned me into a runner inadvertently by just giving me a pair of running shoes. I I I, I went with that. So, yeah. well, the uh, the book is called "I'll Tell You What." That's a phrase that uh, Anne Edwards Cannon's father uh, uses. Her father is Lavelle Edwards, longtime football coach at the uh, Brigham Young University. Um, and Anne Edwards Cannon's book has been published by the King's English Bookshop. You'll find her there uh, quite often. And uh, go to aecannon.com to find out much more. And Cannon, it's been a real pleasure. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you so much. I've loved doing this. And uh, thanks for listening to Access Utah. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Beaver Mountain in Logan Canyon, offering summer camping facilities including yurt, lodge, and tent areas. RV hookups and showers available. Details at skithebeave.com or 435-563-5677. You're listening to Utah Public Radio, a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSU FM Logan, also heard at upr.org.